Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And uh, joining me again today is special guest co-host, Dr. Stephen Sample. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you today? God, you're really gotten that sexy podcaster voice got, down. Got me a new mic. Uh, I'm ready to go. You look goddamn good with that <laughs> mic, too. Um, I, I like to. I try to to make you feel uncomfortable when I compliment your looks, but it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't. I'm, uh... I'm going to take it where I can get it, man. Right. Uh, you're the, you're the <laughs> only one out there uh, talking about how hot I am. Uh, so it's you're just... you're my boo now. It's, it turns it's... out you're my boo. Yeah, but it's uh, not as much fun when you enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just don't. <laughs> Just I'm getting don't. used to it. I, I blushed the first time, but uh, uh, by the time you were like physically, like assaulting me verbally over the internet, uh, yeah. I've gotten used to it. And it's actually to it, right? I'll break thing. you down. Yeah. I'll break you down. Um, so, buddy, we're going to talk about um, QAnon, and we're going to talk about its relationship to ISIS with a ex-CIA political analyst who studied it. So I, I'm actually looking forward to this, but l- let me just let me ask you. Um, You've been in parts of this country, living in parts of this country that uh, is very different from where I live, San Francisco, at least on some aspects of it. Sure. A lot, a lot, all the aspects of it. All many, aspects. many aspects. Um, let me ask you, do you, how big a deal do you think Q is? Are we exaggerating it? Are we making it a bigger deal than it really is because it's so outlandish and so silly? Or, or, or is it really something to be concerned with? So my non-expert um, opinion is um, I don't think Q per se is the challenge. I think it is all of the bullshit that floats around Q uh, because the QAnon conspiracy theory has has come to encompass all conspiracy theories. Um, but in that we are vulnerable now to assholes with microphones and unfortunately pens that are signing laws for us who are willing to give even an ounce of air to some of the fringer conspiracy things. I think that though Q is clearly bullshit to most Americans, they are not immune to Q's bullshit. 
that 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 some of this stuff is making its way into our popular discussions and uh, from medical to politics to healthcare to foreign policy. Uh, so Q in himself is a, probably a 500 pound fat guy sitting in Malaysia's basement <laughs> somewhere, but. But the the downstream effects of Q, I think, are real. I don't know anybody who subscribes to Q's theories per se. Yeah, but yeah. Q is influencing behavior for, right. for certain. Yeah. So it's like this anti-intellectual bend that this country's had for 15, 20, 25 years that has reached this point, this culmination of just super stupid bullshit people believing you know politicians are having secret pedophilic sex rings i mean other than matt gates who might really be doing that you know like politicians who aren't doing that you know yeah, karma come get your boy oh my uh, god that's fascinating um by the time this episode is released i'm really curious to know where we're at in the matt gates story you know I, i'm hopefully to... deeper and deeper because if anybody oh. deserves a little karma coming knocking on their doorstep it's that asshole oh that guy uh all right before we get going to our guest because it's a good conversation and i want to uh really dive into it tell everyone where they can find you and uh tell them what your twitter handle is please sure uh that's basically where you can find me i'm on twitter at superman sings uh s-u-p-e-r-m-a-n-s-i-n-g-s uh jafford md just a fucking er doc is what it stands for um I ain't fancy. You'll hear about my dogs. You'll hear about my pets. You'll hear about me being pissed off at politics. Uh, it's kind of a personal account that went wide because of a couple of uh, a couple of virally kind of tweets, and then uh, started popping on TV occasionally during COVID. Uh, but you can find me there. You'll probably drop in and then drop right back out. I see that all the time. I have a TV appearance and I'll get a couple hundred followers and about uh, two thirds of them will probably scroll through my feed and go, no, fuck this guy. <laughs> and they'll bail. Uh, so, uh, it, my, my Twitter follower account certainly is a, a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Uh, well, but, uh, yeah, I'm there. I really recommend it, guys. If you haven't already followed him, please do because it's a ton of fun to follow. And uh, I really yeah, back at you if you do. Um, all right. So before we go to our guest, uh, a thank you to Nadim for helping us get these episodes out there. Also, if you haven't, please make sure that you uh, give us a review at iTunes uh, for our show. If you, it does help, maybe I don't know. Just do it. What the fuck? Just do it. And, yeah. Um, Anyway, stay tuned. We have a really interesting guest coming up. His name is Brent Giannata. He is a former political analyst for the CIA, and he's researched the psychology of Islamic State foreign fighters, people who left the West to join terrorist groups in Iraq and Syria. And he's going to talk about what he's learned from studying those people that we might apply to Q and these deep, crazy conspiracy theories that we're uh, seeing here in the United States now. So stay tuned. Okay, and welcome back to the House of Pod. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Brent Giannata. He is a former CIA political analyst, and he wrote a recent article in the Los Angeles Times called What I Learned About Islamic State Applies to QAnon 2. So, Brent, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
So stoked, man. Yeah. Uh, we read your article in the uh, LA Times. It was LA Times, right? Yeah. I read it uh, when it was published. And it, I, I was, uh, I, my first thought was, what a freaking cool job this dude had. <laughs> you know? Uh, so when when uh, when I was told that we were talking to you today, I was I was excited. I was fangirling a little bit. So yeah, it was pretty <laughs> He was much more excited about this than like if I were to tell him it was a doctor. So yeah, that, that's high for praise. For sure, man. Uh, we're we're going to only mention COVID like somewhat peripherally and as it relates to psychology. So I am I am down for this totally. So tell tell just start by telling us what you did for the CIA. Yeah, so I started in uh, middle of 2010 and uh, they dropped me as an analyst into the Iraq department. So I was part of this pilot program. This is inside baseball. It's not super exciting, but for decades, the CIA has thrown uh, case officers, agents, for the first year, they would send them to a year of language school and then bring them on and then train them to be agents and send them off in the field. They had never done that for analysts before. And so in 2010, they introduced a pilot program and they asked me if I would like to be part of this program. And I said, yes, because at that point in 2010, I had taken about five or six years of Arabic language. So the towers came down when I was a junior in college and just my whole world just kind of flipped over. Yes, and I sir. decided I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go into medicine. I'm not going to be an architect. I'm just watching this. I'm like, this is what I need to do with my life. There was, there was never any doubt about that. It was like, it was that one choice. So I jumped into Arabic. I got pretty good at it. I spent a summer in Beirut um, looking like I do I'm a very pale guy. So I stood out a bit. Uh, but it was an amazing, amazing experience. And I just fell in love with the language and the culture. So I jumped at this opportunity to be in this pilot program. I'm in a tiny classroom about 15 miles west of DC with two other analysts and, uh, and uh, a teacher. And so while I'm learning Arabic, getting to be from maybe, maybe uh, like a medium level speaker to like more of an advanced speaker, the Arab Spring happens and it starts in Tunisia in December and it spins into Egypt and Syria and Yemen. And so my classmates and I are watching this all unfold. It'd be like, Jesus Christ. And so when I get back on the line, as we call it, back into my office, they had changed the name of my department to the Syria Iraq department. And they gave me the account or the topic that no one wanted, which was ISIS's ability to hit the West, which in 2012, when I started being an actual analyst was not a thing at all. They had no, they had stated no intention to do so. They didn't have really a demonstrated capability to do it. But then in 2013 and 2014, it became the biggest thing in the entire building. So my career went from just trying to write reports that no one really cared about to flying all over the world and briefing at the Eisenhower building and meeting people on national security staff. Um, it was a wild ride, but it was, uh, you know, it was the coolest thing I've ever done professionally by far and uh, an honor to serve for sure. So before we go into what you learned, let me ask you, why did you then leave the CIA? So I left after exactly five and a half years and it was a large melange of reasons. And one of them was that I really didn't like the secrecy involved. I mean, when you, when you get on board there, it's, it feels very cool. Like many days of your career feel like you're in a movie or you're, you're in 24 and you're that person. Um, from like my car in the parking lot to being at my computer, like working at full blast, I needed to remember 11 passwords. I remember counting them one day. I'm like, that's, that's silly, <laughs> but that's just, <laughs> it's part of the job. 
and other days and other moments you feel like you're in office space where you're standing over this printer and it's just not doing anything and you just want to bash with the baseball bats um so it, it's a wild thing but after a few years of you know meeting people in bars i was in my 20s and early 30s i'm an extrovert i'm a night owl i'm going out and i'm meeting people and i'm not allowed really to talk about what i do and i didn't like that i didn't like starting these relationships out based on a lie based on a no, lie yeah yeah and number two i was um I was looking at the senior analysts above me. These guys have been doing this for 20, 30 years, and they're very smart and they've served their country valiantly and done a lot of amazing stuff and saved, definitely saved lives. But I didn't, I didn't want to be them. I didn't want to be the guy who knew a million things about one thing. And that one thing you could not talk about at cocktail parties. Number three is that um, being an analyst, it's, we call it between being at, between academia and journalism. So it's a ton of research. You're just reading all day long, kind of as fast as you can. And then it's a lot of writing. I mean, part of analyst training is a five month, basically writing boot camp. So I became a good writer. I enjoyed the process. And I just one day decided I wanted to do this, but for a larger audience and on different topics. So in December, 2015, um, I resigned and I moved to New York and I became a writer slash journalist, and uh, here I am. Right, so you'd write uh, miles-long reports and probably for just a very few eyes that actually sometimes, ever got to actually look at sometimes those Sometimes for a few right? eyes. Actually, these are not miles long. There's Brevity is divine in the government. So well, okay. most, most things that I wrote were about a page long, if that, and a long paper, like a stand-back strategic paper, is like three to five pages. It is very, very short writing, but every word counts. High yield, low drag. But, but, that, yeah. <laughs> but, but doesn't that like seem uh, like part of a bigger problem? Because we're dealing with countries and cultures and things that we may not completely understand. And like not having really deep, nuanced understanding seems to be a bit of our problem in general with, with, these, with what we've done in these places, right? It's a, a gigantic part of our problem. But you hit the nail on the head. So when I entered on... Um, in 2010, I looked around my office and I realized I was one of two Arabic speakers and there's like 70 people in that room. I'm like, this is, this is terrible. And we've been in Iraq for seven years at that point. It's unforgivable. We need way more people with language skills. And we, and more than that, we need people with cultural skills. Right. I mean, we had the same problem in Vietnam, like everywhere we go, we don't understand what is going to happen after we do what we want to do. And in Iraq, it was a complete complete catastrophe. I mean, right. almost 100,000 people died in Iraq because we moved a couple chess pieces and then shit just completely spun out of control. We cannot, cannot let that happen again. Right, right. Well, it sounds like you had a really fascinating job. Trying to sell me on 24, though. That's not going to work for me. Is it no. Iran? Let not. me tell you something. I, I watched 24. 24 was oh, my man. first realm into, into um, basically binge watching TV. So I was in Iraq in 2009, uh, deployed oh, wow. with the military. Yeah. And there, when you're not working, it sounds exciting. And, but when you're not taking rocket fire or mortar fire and you're not taking care of traumas, you have hours to sit oh, and look at yourself. I, so I believe that. But for me, it was like, you know, being a Middle Eastern guy, people, yeah. like, you, you got to check out the show 24. It's amazing. I'm like, mm, yeah, well, I, I find it. it amazing. Am I going to, am I going to like it? As amazing like, as you. Let, <laughs> my, let, my, let me guess. Is it like this guy from America's like, God damn it. I would solve these crimes. If it wasn't for this ACLU and all these civil liberties getting in the way. Yeah. So I'm like, ah, I'm probably not going to love it the way you guys. And all the, and, and, and all the Persians die. 
Yeah, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure there's like yeah. no decent Iranian dude in the whole thing. No. There may be a best one decent Iranian woman character, but the Iranian guys are all like, eh. a lot of evil ones, eh. a lot of scary eh. ones, yeah. <laughs> lots of Allahu Akbar. And, yeah, it's never an uh, Iranian guy like me wearing a Steph Curry shirt, just hanging out, <laughs> and like, beer with his friends, you know. Uh, Anyways, different story. We'll get back to that some other point, but. Uh, so so let's get back to that paper that uh, Dr. Sample here kind of mentioned at the, the top of the episode here. Um, can you tell us about this article you wrote and, and can you just basically give us a breakdown of why you wrote it? Yeah, so I'm thinking about my experience in the government and what I learned there and uh, what, if anything, I could possibly contribute to this conversation. And so the article is the outgrowth of that thought process. And so I, I watched the Capitol Hill riot like we all did. And I could I, I could see in these people's eyes the, the zealotry that I could see in the groups that my department followed, uh, namely ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And it sort of started to come together to me that um, extreme belief is it's, it's a lot of it is cut from the same cloth or rather it all operates in the same part of the brain. And so there's a lot of components to it. Um, I grew up uh, Catholic and a lot of people in my world are still religious. I, I, I currently don't, uh, don't tell anybody that I don't go to church anymore, <laughs> but um, so I've been able to sort of like be in it and then be outside of it and look at it from the outside. And, and what I've come to believe is that religion has survived so long in the human race because it delivers a coterie of positive sort of uh, feedback loops to the human psyche. And there's just a bunch of them. So one is that it, you know, it, it explains, it sort of brings us order out of this chaotic world, this chaotic life that we're living. Number two, it makes us feel that we're a moral person. Um, there's this component that it just blasts you with good feelings about yourself. Three, there's a community, obviously. There's other people who are like-minded and who think that you're a good person and they'll defend you if you're ever in trouble. I mean, that's like very, very gratifying to the human psyche. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff like that. And so when you look at something like QAnon, which is absolutely insane on its face, it's got to hit a lot of these sort of bells in the human brain for it to, for anyone to grab onto it with the ferocity that, that these people have. And so I'm like, all right, well, this is very similar to someone who grew up in a Muslim family. And, and honestly, most of my targets, the guys that I were following, they weren't incredibly religious when they were growing up in, in Belgium or in France. Their parents were religious. You know, they, their parents usually immigrated from Morocco or Algeria, Tunisia, moved up to France or Belgium, this is Francophone. And their sons, they didn't like going to mosques so much until they, they met somebody or they fell into a rabbit hole on YouTube and they saw how the Syrian war was popping off and how evil, evil the U.S. military was and the West writ large. And then they started going to mosque and they met somebody at mosque. They met one or two or three other people, met a few other people on the Internet. And then someone in Syria or Turkey reached out to them and said, hey, here's how you get to us. And these 23, 24 year olds with not the best life in Western Europe, they found that if they went to this dusty, impoverished war zone in northern Syria, they could take themselves from the fringe of society to the center of world events. That they would be, I mean, you guys, you remember this, between, you know, 2013 and 2015, ISIS was on the front page 
like every single day, at least yeah. in my world, it was. Sure. sure. No, it was here as well. Yeah. yeah. And so think about the, the Capitol Hill rioters. I mean, these guys, they they coalesced into this you know army of a few hundred and they almost flipped over the United States government, the most powerful entity that the human race has ever constructed. Yeah. I mean, the surge of importance that that brings somebody who's got maybe a crappy job in a crappy town, who is going through a divorce, who's got debts, like that is explosively attractive. And so I, I wanted to sort of bring this full circle and say, I have seen this before and that the animosity that a lot of people are bringing toward these people is not the way to, to, to battle this. I mean, this is happening in the States. This is happening to people that I know and that you know. They're losing their uncles and their grandfathers and yeah. some of their spouses. It's just yes, it's heartbreaking. We got to do something about it. Yeah, it's it, it is it, it is hard. We were, we were talking about that just a little bit ago in terms of vaccine even denialism. But these groups, this community is powerful. And, and certainly, uh, when I watched when I watched the Capitol sh shit nearly burn, and I watched the, the you know a moron with a horns on his head and fa body paint get within sixty seconds of the vice president of the United yeah. States of America, uh, it's insanity. But in that crowd were not just the poor, the impoverished, this and that. There were Southern business owners, you know. There were you know certainly overwhelmingly white um, who have found their place. And and in your article, you spoke about it as well. So right now we're talking in terms of community and we're talking in terms of a kind of shared purpose, but you also talk about anger uh, as, as part of this driving force. Uh, where are we getting our anger here? Where is this, where is this, how are we navigating? How do we go from the USA on 9-11 where we were, where redneck held hands with hippie, held hands with everybody and let's go kill all the brown people that live way the hell over there. You know, how do we go from that now to basically eating our own? Uh, yeah. That's such a great question. And uh, one I haven't, I would like to address even more. But so in the human family, some of us are more prone to anger than others. I personally am not one of these people. I'm, man, I'm a pacifist. Like if there's, if there's some drama going on, I usually like turn around and go in the other room. I'm just not a, not a big fan of it. Other people, people that I love and care for a lot, anger is something that comes very naturally to them. They blow off some steam and then they're incredibly precise and accurate and logical after that. So I don't fault anybody for sort of, you know, having this in their, in their personal constitution. But that is one of the main things that makes somebody vulnerable to extreme belief like this. Um, so that's on a, on a micro level. I think the human race has never going to get rid of angry people. It's just not going to happen. It's just like it's part of who we are. On a macro level is, is where I think it gets a lot more interesting because we had an economic crash in this country in, in 2008. And there are parts of the country that, frankly, economists say have not yet recovered, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got um, a lot of towns, probably Dr. Sample, probably around where you are, um, that just don't look like they used to look. They don't feel like they used to look. Mm -hmm. um, there was maybe a more vibrant Main Street, and now um, it's not as vibrant. And maybe there's more people with darker skin tone that are uh, living there and speaking a different language and sort of not working themselves into the culture that a lot of these people remember from past decades. So now you've got this perfect storm of some degradation socially and communally. And then you've got these other people coming in who sort of are accidentally at the wrong place at the wrong time and serve as a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, you can throw all sorts of stuff in there. You can throw in that um, a lot of the jobs just writ large across the board are getting crappier. They're getting harder. People are working 
longer hours for less pay. Um, the prices for healthcare are just outrageous. Um, there are a lot of things that a lot of Americans knew or assumed that they would have at this point in their lives, 40s, 50s, 60s, didn't materialize. And they're looking at their parents and their parents did a lot better than them. I'm actually one of those people. My dad, my dad runs circles around me. He's, he makes eight, <laughs> 80 times as much as I do. Um, and so if this is going to happen on mass at, at scale in a country of 335 million people, you're going to have 30 or 40 million who are going to be in this very, very vulnerable space and their anger is going to take over and their brain is going to grab onto the extremist belief and dive in and stay there and just see where it goes. There's a yeah. lot. There's a lot there that um, I want to sort of pick apart and talk about. It's a lot yeah. of important stuff. The first thing is when we talk about these people coming from different uh, communities, right, coming from different backgrounds, and we talk about them being in the wrong place at the at the wrong time. We're talking about you know minorities, people who are just as American as anybody else, coming in into communities where uh, or or the the nature of a community changing over the course of time, as has always happened in America from its very inception. Um, there, what can we do about that very basic general problem that we have in accepting that? Because that's just how it's going to be. America, what makes us great, in my opinion, is that we are a nation made up of immigrants from all over, and it's constantly changing. We're not, we are not static. Things can always change. It's a dynamic place. How do we address that? I mean, that is some deep-rooted sort of racism in this country, systemic racism that I don't know how to even... Uh, scratch the surface of, and 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 I know there's more to these people than just racism, but that does seem to be a big part of it. How do we address that part of it? You're right. So, from me, and this is not where this is not my area of expertise. I see two major things this country's got to do to uh, to reduce outward and inward racism. One is that scientists have found that integration works. When you go to grade school, junior high, high school, and college with people who don't look like you and come from somewhere different, you generally end up not hating them. You have tons and tons of anecdotes from your life um, where you, you have a tough time convincing yourself that these people are a gigantic problem, right? And number two, it's media. You know, in, um, in Europe, when there was the migration crisis, which I believe is still going on, but during the during the bulk of it, they found that countries that had almost no migrants were the angriest and had the strictest laws against migrants. Czech Republic, for example, Slovakia, like mm -hmm. Middle Europe. So what do they have to go off of? Well, they've never met these people. So it's really easy to paint people when, who you haven't met. And number two, if if all they have, the only input they have about these people is what they're seeing in the media and this explosive, unregulated digital media, then it's going to be real bad. The stuff that is, gets fed right, to them right. and too many mm -hmm. of them start to believe, it gets real, real bad. And it's not even interpersonal. It's not that they, uh, they see somebody walking down the street and they want to hit them. It's usually not that. It's usually this macro abstraction in their head to be like, these people are bad because they're tilting the power structure in a way that, is, that disadvantages me. And that is absolutely happening here in this country. We need integration. We, we need to have laws that make it easier for students, young people of different races to come together on a more regular basis. And we need to get, a, get control over this, the media that we're all consuming. 
Yeah, I, I've been very um, over the last. I mean, really, just the last four or five years, um, I have become very pessimistic, like as to our future, because the digital world is only expanding. It's only expanding to more people, and people are getting more pissed and more pissed, and and they don't. You're right. So you guys who are coastal, certainly, you guys are in like a melting pot, like where we are in Middle America, and most of America. Frankly, at least geographically, is Middle America. Wherever you go, you, you chop off California and the East Coast, and and it looks a whole lot more like where I live than where you live. And there is a lot of that. So we have a, I mean, we have a decent immigrant population, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly migrant type laborers, factories, farms, chicken houses, you know, kind of things like that. And in general, they do not mix. There is a there is a large brown community in the town kind of south of us, and they are very interactive. Their language is spoken freely. They you know they they live together, but we don't interact together. They don't necessarily even go to the same churches or or this and that because there are a lot of true immigrants, not second generation Americans, but literally just got here six months ago from Cuba or Salvador or or wherever. Um, and there isn't that integration. So it's like, look at those people over there. Um, and why don't they assimilate? Why don't they do what we do? Right. You know, we're happy to eat their food. Uh, <laughs> and we're happy to, you know, say nice things. But in the end, you need to assimilate. I, you know, I see I see staff get frustrated when someone who just got here can't speak the language. And I said, shit, if you moved to Paris tomorrow and you were in a car wreck, would you be able to communicate freely in French with, yeah. with those people? And it's, yeah, it's yeah. so difficult. I'm just, I'm rambling just in frustration because we're, we're tapping on a big passion project in mind and I'm, I don't know how to fix it. That's, that's huge. It's a huge issue we have. I mean, we have to be as a country more appreciative of uh, the differences we have and, it's easy to, I don't know, you're right. I mean, humans are going to find triggers to to hate other humans. It's unfortunate, but that is stuff we have to actively be working on constantly. And mm-hmm. and I know that you, for example, Dr. Sample, you're, you're dealing with that a lot where you are and, and you're trying to lead by example. I appreciate that. Um, let me get back to this uh, article you wrote. You have some stuff in here that I really like. I mean, a lot of lines that are really, uh, that stuck with me. Like, for example, beliefs are squishy things. <laughs> that's yes, a line from here. tell me what you mean by that what, what do you mean by beliefs are squishy things oh thanks well we have a lot of evidence that that everybody on this podcast speaking right now we're all educated intelligent people we like to think so that we believe a lot of stuff that is doesn't really check out that uh every now and then you know someone calls me on something and then i think about it, i'm like oh yeah that's wrong but i I use that as a belief in my everyday sort of life and how I converse with people. But if you were to put a gun to my head and you ask me, is, is that 100% true? And I can confirm it you know, with this nonpartisan person over here, I would give it another thought. And, and a lot of times I would say, no, okay, all right. No, that's not completely true. Mm-hmm. And so if educated, you know, well-fed, well-nourished adults who are well-adjusted- He's calling us fat. <laughs> Even. I'm down 15 pounds since my daughter's left home. Oh, wow. oh man. Congratulations. <laughs> Sorry, so go on. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so if we are squishy with our beliefs, if the things that we say that we believe, if a lot of those things really don't fully check out to be a thousand percent true, then think of somebody who maybe is not happy with their life, 
going through a divorce, up to their neck in debts. Think about that vulnerable person and what they are liable to believe. And how susceptible they are to the bad actors out there who are who know how to play this game exactly. uh, and they reach out. So, yes, certainly that played with ISIS and the kids from Morocco or, or, or France or Belgium. But now we've got QAnon. Um, and, you know, and, and you talk a lot about QAnon and how how those that psychology, that innate psychology kind of translates. Um, and in general, you know, the, the theory to me of QAnon is complete another horseshit, of course. I mean, it is. It's it, for anybody who understands anything, it, it's madness. But that stuff, the side fringes uh, we were talking about a little bit ago is sort of bleeding out. So not the big conspiracies, not the eating children and the adenochrome and stuff like that. Very few people believe that stuff. But the little things with vaccines and corporations mm-hmm. and, the, and the, this and that is sort of bleeding out of that into our mainstream. And that's when we're seeing the effect on every street. I don't know anybody who believes in Q, but I know a lot of people who believe in some bullshit that those people are purporting. You know, mm-hmm. That's the, the question, right, is what characteristics are there in people that lead them to believe this stuff? What is it that takes someone from regular religious beliefs to that jump to these, this devotion to conspiracy theories? Mm-hmm. Well, it's <clears throat> generally, it's filling some psychological needs. If, if your need isn't high enough, then this isn't going to comport with you. For the human brain to bend itself, to believe that Hillary Clinton buys and eats babies for their blood you you need to have a need it's got to be a psychological need and so psychological to mean maybe it's not in the front of the brain like cerebral cortex where you where you do addition subtraction Mm -hmm. but it's you know maybe here in the in the lizard brain in the brain stem where there's a lot there's constantly calculations going on back here based on what you're going to believe who you're going to talk to what you're going to feel about this person or about this new information you just got and I wanted to explain that we're all doing this <clears throat> all day, every day. Our, our lizard brain is making calculations for us about how we are going to digest the inputs that we're getting from people, places, and things every single moment of every day. And if, if a human brain is vulnerable enough, so maybe put some stress in there, put some financial stress, put some interpersonal stress, put this abstract idea that my dad is, you know, four times richer than me and that my mom wanted me to be married by now, but I'm not, or that I have three kids, but none of them talk to me. Some sort of vulnerability at some point that brain is going to read some stuff on the internet. And we all know what digital media does to us. It does wacky, horrible things. It affects our memory. I mean, it rewires our memories. It, uh, it blasts us with dopamine. It, it rewires the way we feel reward in the brain. This is this perfect storm of digital media and personal vulnerability where your, your, your brain is reaching for something like anything to give it some dopamine, to give it some serotonin. Right, it's right. been starved of it for yeah. so long. Yeah. Suddenly I'm going to do this. I'm going to pick this and you're not, it's not up here in the front of the brain. It's in the back. It's in the back. Yeah. So, so what do we, so what did, have you learned in, in your time studying, you know, ISIS that you feel could be used to combat this misinformation from Q? What, what have we learned from what you've done in the past that we might be able to use today? Yeah, good question. So this goes for fighting um, extremism, terrorism. It also goes for all of public policy. So when you, have a, when you have a problem in your society, 
you need to hit it at every angle. It's going to be a lot of angles. There's going to be a lot of stages to this phenomenon. You got to hit every single stage of it. If you only hit sort of the top stage, it will divert itself and figure out a way to keep to keep alive. So you hit all of it at the same time. So with something like QAnon, that means you need to hit you need to hit the information. So the digital outlets that are spewing this stuff. So that means we've had we've had a really big win in taking Q off of Facebook and Twitter and the major social media outlets. I think that's a gigantic step forward in fighting this place. And I personally believe that that has pushed Q to an inflection point, that it's sort of at a crossroads and it could potentially start to die out if we, if we keep a lid on it. Um, we have to, um, I'm, I believe that sunlight is a good disinfectant, which is also happening right now too. So, Every single day in mainstream outlets, people are writing about QAnon. So it's not just uh, an underground cabal of people. Like mm -hmm. more and more people are learning what this is and that, oh, 30, per, 30 million of my co-patriots believe that, you know, Barack Obama is trading baby fetuses with Hillary Clinton and George <laughs> Soros. Okay. So I think that pressure from people who don't believe is going to be really important too. Um, Another great thing that's happened is that the uh, DA, the Department of Justice is publicly arresting and indicting uh, Capitol Hill insurrectionists. Um, every day there's, every other day or so, there's an update on who these people are and on what kind of charges they're facing and how much trouble they're in and that they are in jail. They're not in their houses safely and that they're you know now a martyr to the cause where they do not have their livelihoods anymore. The more that QAnon adherents know that information, that is going to really eat away at their ability to keep believing this stuff and to keep shelling out energy and talents for this cause. So that's a yeah. handful of things yeah. we need to do. So when we were fighting ISIS, I mean, we needed to take away their area of operation, which is basically giving money and guns to the Kurds and giving them strategic direction and then helping out with uh, aerial bombing. So when a terrorist group cannot sit and settle, they can't plot. If they're constantly on the move, they're not nearly as dangerous. Um, you have to disrupt their sense of community. You have to disrupt their information. And so we need to hit all of these things as a society and as a government, or else Q is not going anywhere. Right. And neither are any any of the other stuff. Our last guest was Dr. Angela Rasmus, and she's a virologist. And and we were talking a lot about the anti-vaccine movement, which actually shares, you know, it, it's it's not as uh, not as sexy. There's nobody blowing up or, or buildings coming down, but people are dying yeah. because of this underground movement. All the same, probably um, more death. May, actually. actually, maybe in higher numbers, you yeah. just don't recognize it as being a source uh, from that. Right. And and the the adherence to the anti-vaccination movement are certainly adjacent, if not in bed with the adherence of the QAnon movement right now. Mm -hmm. And people are dying and, and people will continue because now we're in the middle of a global pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years. Um, and. I'm, you know, we were talking about addressing it one person at a time to try to kill this, but the the it is so organized. And maybe more organized than Q because the anti-vaccine movement has lived for 
I mean, for since Andrew Wakefield fucked it up for everybody back whenever mm-hmm. he did that. Um, but um, do you have anything to bring us hope, basically, to the hopeless? It, like, can we counter this bullshit, and how do we do it in an organized fashion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I do have one thing that gives me hope, and Dr. Sample, you should let me know if you have a different idea about this, but that mathematically, so what are we at? We're at 20, 25, 30% of the country's been been vaccinated ish. yeah ish. ish that's about okay. that's about holds for indiana i think we crossed 26 percent the other day or something of our, all right good of our go. state so yeah okay good go america so <laughs> we need i've heard we need 70 to 80 percent to get to herd immunity yeah okay so we're gonna we're gonna push toward that goal in the next month or two or three and i i imagine in my head that we're gonna get to a point where we're at like 65 we're like almost there and you add up all the anti-vaxxers and that's who we need. Right. And then suddenly, publicly in the media, these anti-vaxxers become very serious public pariahs where a ton of energy, like publicly, like churches and, uh, you know, state, local governments, that all that energy goes toward these people. And I, I like to think that we live in America and we can solve problems if we're pushed up against the wall. I and I'm so. hoping that, that that's going to happen with yeah. this what, what do you think it, I, I i'm less optimistic than you in that I, I think it may be easier to put pressure against the uh the uh, terrorists or in, insurrectionists than it is this because it is so insidious and, and the the idea of natural is so pervasive through what yeah. we sell each other what right. we tell each other and that our bodies mm-hmm. are designed for this or god made you for this and and this synthetic stuff is bad it is a it is a challenge and unfortunately those places that you talked about the churches and, and the community centers and the healthy people it's yeah. the really healthy people that are pushing this bullshit often yeah. yeah you know because yeah. they're healthy by yeah. by genetics or whatever so it's hard it, it, I, I, I absolutely agree unfortunately i am really pessimistic about it too because it's so much easier to sell confidence in nonsense than it is in a complicated nuanced approach to something yeah. which is what this requires um but i i do feel also at the same time that the more People see it. The more, like you said, we shine a light on it, put sunshine on this and allow people to see what's really happening and keep pushing the vaccines and the data behind them. I do have some hope that we will we will be able to convince enough people. I I, I am remaining stupidly optimistic about it. Um, (laughs) My my sense is a lot of people that are are hesitant about this vaccine. They're not even anti-vax. That that doesn't apply broadly. They know that that the first time in human history that we've come up with a vaccine in a year and under yeah. four years. Right. And so, okay, yeah. some skittishness. Sure. But with the passage of time, tack three more months onto this, they're not going to see waves and waves of death or, or right. like third arms growing out of people's faces. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's going to help so. too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what exactly right. And I, but there are people who are counter about who are on the other side of this constantly in a very organized fashion putting out misinformation to say, oh, these are the numbers of deaths that we're seeing from this. There are side effects. 10% of people are getting sick. Purposely misunderstanding the information that's being put out there. Purposely misunderstanding the data that's there. So it's a battle, but it's a battle. I do think, honestly, I think we can win. So um, I'm going to end on that because I want to end on a positive note. And by the way, thank you for giving a shout out to the Kurds, like the nicest yeah. group of people that like you'll ever meet. And we have probably like three Kurdish followers. So I think out. we left them, right? Did we just did we bail? 
We do that every time. To the <laughs> I think we bailed on the Kurds. Ass. Yeah, they save our ass every ten years, and then they, we just leave they them have, at the altar. They have a saying: "No friends but the mountains." We have no friends but the mountains. Yeah. The Kurds are like the dopest people you'll ever meet, and yeah. if you meet a Kurd out there, give them a hug when it's uh, when awesome. they're vaccinated. From, from six vaccinated. feet away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're all vaccinated. Anyways, Brent, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It was really a pleasure hey, to have you thanks on. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. super cool, dude. You're great. It's awesome. Tell, yeah, us where hey, we, tell, tell yeah. us where we can find you. Yeah. Oh my plug, gosh. Plug. Uh, I need to plug more, but my plug, Twitter, plug. I need more Twitter followers. So I got my you. Twitter is Brent Giannata. It's spelled G-I-N-N-O-T-T-A. Uh, I've got like 300 now. I need more for this book deal. So we'll see if we can get it. There. Get a book coming. Yeah. Well, we're in talks. We're going to see. Awesome. Nice, nice. All right. Yeah. Will you come back when that book is out? Okay. I would love to. All right, man. Yeah, man. To you. Thanks guys. You too. Thank you, brother. All right. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.